So I'm Pastor Michael. We are doing a sermon series in the Gospel of John. And uh, we're now approaching the climax of the story. And uh, last week, actually it was two weeks ago if you remember, we looked at the story of Jesus on trial before the Sanhedrin, before Annas and Caiaphas. And then the passage this week, Jesus is brought before Pilate, the Roman governor. And I want you to know the text that we have here is really an extraordinary text because you have the cosmic son of God and he's being questioned by the chief representative of the Roman Empire, which is really the the apex of human power, arguably the greatest empire in human history. And at the heart of this dialogue, I want you to know, is, is a question about political power. That's what Pilate wants to know. Jesus, are you political? What is your political agenda? And as I have thought about this question and as I was working on the sermon, I realized that this really speaks to the cultural moment that we are in right now. This is the question du jour. What is the role of the church in politics? This is the uh, discussion that's going on in social media, and this is the discussion that's also happening in our church. And so I decided to preach a different kind of sermon today. It's not going to be you know, sort of your traditional exegetical style sermon that um, I like to do or I I try to do, but instead it's going to be more of a position paper. I'm not going to look at, I'm not going to go through the text verse by verse, you know, unpacking all the elements of of the story, which really makes me sad because I had to discard like 80% of my notes. And I'm going to focus all my attention on this one question. And before I present to you, you know, my answer, or the answer that I think is in the text, I really want you to know this is a work in progress. This is really a provisional position for me because as I'm reading and as I'm thinking about it, I have to say I really don't know. Truly, I really don't know because there is a wide spectrum of views on the role of the church in politics in the Christian tradition. And and that's fine. You know, honest Christians will disagree on this issue. And so I, I really want us to think of it like this, that you and I, we are fellow travelers on this road in trying to understand the nature of the kingdom of God. And I think this passage is key because whatever Jesus' answer is, that has to be our answer as well. And I want you to know that Jesus gives us a beguiling answer. It's really a frustrating answer because he doesn't give us straightforward instructions. You know what I'm saying? Like he doesn't say, okay, here's the political agenda. I want you to, you know, get politically active. I want you to be a political church. Here's the blueprint for all of that, which, you know, maybe some liberal Christians would prefer. But on the other hand, he doesn't say no politics. 
He doesn't say, you know, what I'm giving you is private religion, a private devotion that doesn't really have a public impact, which is maybe what some conservative Christians would prefer to hear. And conservatives also are on the other side, right? They, they would also like a politicized church. But instead, the answer I, Jesus gives us, I think, is a very complex, very nuanced answer that doesn't lend itself to a simplistic formula. I think it's a brilliant answer. I think it's a, it's a compelling, beautiful answer as far as I can understand it. And so with that in mind, let's read the text. And because the sermon is going to be a little bit on the long side, um, I wrote my first draft on Thursday, and then all Friday and all Saturday, I was reworking it and rewriting. Um, and because I'm not going to address a large chunk of the passage, I just want to read verses 33 to 38, okay? So in your bulletins, at home and um, here in the park, let me read it for you. So Pilate, this is verse 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord or did you, or did others say it to you about me? So Jesus here is asking Pilate, Is this a really good faith, genuine question or are you just going along with the program? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Pilate here is really a savvy political actor. He knows the Sanhedrin could have informally executed Jesus by stoning. They specifically want the shame of Roman crucifixion. So why has he so gotten under their skin? He wants to know. Verse 36, Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Pilate answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? This is the word of God. I have three points. Here's the outline. Number one, I want you to see that from the text, Jesus is not political. Secondly, I want you to see from the text, Jesus is political. And then finally, I'm going to close with some remarks about politics in our church. So let's start. Point number one, Jesus is not political. Let's get right to the heart of it. Verse 33, Pilate asks, are you the king of the Jews? He's asking, are you a threat to Rome? Are you leading an armed insurrection against the Roman Empire? Because if Jesus is a king then that puts him in direct conflict and competition with the Roman king, right? The emperor. Because, and this is really basic, you can't have two kings in the land, right? If each is claiming sovereignty, if each wants to impose their vision of rule upon the land, well, then they have to fight. 
So each king assembles their army, they meet on the battlefield, and there will be a winner, and there will be a loser. And in the ancient world, the winner became king, and the loser got crucified. And so Pilate is saying, are you trying to take over, Jesus? Are you trying to overthrow the existing power structures? Here is Jesus' answer. It is a brilliant answer. Verse 36. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. So the key to understanding this answer, I think, is to recognize that it is a paradox. It's a paradox because there is something that Jesus is affirming and there's something that Jesus is denying. He is affirming that he's the king. He says, my kingdom. And we're going to look at that in depth in the second point, right? We're going to unpack what does it mean that Jesus is the king? What is the nature of his kingdom? But first, I want to focus on what Jesus is denying. And what he is denying is he says, my servants do not fight. My servants do not fight. Now, Jesus is not just talking about armed combat. He's not simply saying, in my kingdom, we practice nonviolence. Listen to me. He is saying something much, much deeper. Do you remember in the garden, Jesus said to Peter, do not draw the sword. Put away the sword. Right? Do not take up the sword in my name. Now you have to understand that in the Bible, the word sword is a metaphor. And it is a metaphor for political power. This is clear if you read Romans 13. I think Romans 13 is really a key passage to unpacking and understanding what's going on here in John 18. Because Romans 13 gives us the biblical view of the state. And in Romans 13 verse 4, Paul says, the power of the sword is the power of the magistrate to put you in prison. The power of the sword is the power of the state to write laws and then to punish you if you don't obey the laws because, of course, it's not voluntary. It's a matter of compulsion. And therefore, hear me now, the power of the state is coercive. The state can force you to do what you don't want to do. You don't want to pay taxes. It doesn't matter. But it doesn't mean that power is illegitimate. Romans 13 recognizes the government's, what we would now call police powers, to enforce the laws. Romans 13 articulates that the basic role of government is to ensure public safety and the administration of justice. That's what government is for. But what if there are competing visions of justice? What if there are two groups, each with a very different vision of what justice will look like, how justice should be administered? What do we do? Which vision should win out? And the answer is, 
we work out the answer through politics. And so politics, and, and this is a very important point, by its very nature, is the negotiation of power. In the ancient world, political power was negotiated through warfare. In the modern world, political power is negotiated through the ballot box, through voting. But in both cases, don't you see, it's the same principle. It's different groups vying to wield the power of the sword. And so what Jesus is saying in our passage is, I don't want anyone drawing the sword in my name because my kingdom is not political. And so I don't want my servants and I don't want my, my, my servants to seize political power. What that means specifically is this, the church. And what I, what I, what I mean by the church is the institution of the church. The officers of the church are not to pull the levers of political power. Because when Jesus repudiated the sword, he was refusing politics as a means to advance the kingdom of God. Do you understand? Let me lay out for you what that means concretely. That means that this whole medieval project of Christendom where church and state were fused is wrong. That means the Crusades in which the church used military means to gain territory is wrong. That means when missionaries cooperated with and went alongside of colonizers, that was wrong. That means this whole notion which has haunted the American church from the beginning, that America is a Christian nation and this idea of Christian nationalism is wrong. The church must resist at every step the temptation to wield political power, to impose its vision of the world through politics on an unbelieving world because Jesus says, do not take up the sword. Now, let me clarify what I am not saying. I am not saying politics is evil. I'm not saying, you know, politics is dirty business. You know, the church, the Christians shouldn't get involved in that messy business, stay above the fray. Let me say it so clearly to you. Christians, as Christians, you should vote. You should be politically engaged. Don't be apathetic. This is your way to practice good citizenship. This is your way that you can love your neighbors to care about civil affairs. But what I want you to know is that the political expressions are going to look different for every believer and that's fine. We're all gonna come to different conclusions about the complex problems that we face. So for example, take immigration. Should immigration be high or should it be low? That is one of the hot button topics that's being discussed today. Well, I can tell you as your pastor, I could teach you from the Bible 
that the Bible says you should love immigrants. You should treat all immigrants with dignity and compassion. But as an officer of the church, I cannot tell you the Bible says immigration should be high or immigration should be low. That is a matter for you to work out and decide. And you should take into account, you know, economics, you know, cultural cohesion. All of these factors are valid ways to look at this question. And so the role of the church, my role as your pastor is to provide theological structure, to give you guiding moral principles, right? My job as your pastor is to teach you and instruct you and disciple you so that you can think Christianly. And then go out there and work out concretely what that means for your public lives. And it's going to require a lot of thought. How do we translate our faith in Christ into the public square, into the public realm? It's not easy. Let me give you a cautionary tale. I want you to consider the story of prohibition in the 1920s. Prohibition is when uh, they banned the sale of alcohol. So what happened is, if you know this, the, the history of it, in the decades leading up to prohibition, the churches got super political. Thousands and thousands of local chapters of what were called the Christian Women's Temperance Union were formed and they would organize, they would march, they would protest, and it, it was actually closely connected to the women's suffrage movement because people were saying, well, you, well, women should have a vote in these matters. And so the temperance movement was addressing a deep social problem of public drunkenness and domestic abuse. There was a lot of battered women because of this pervasive problem of alcoholism. And so the temperance movement saw itself as this righteous battle against the commercial interests of breweries, and it was the social justice issue of its day. And then after decades and decades of political activism, in 1920, the 18th Amendment was finally passed, which banned the sale of alcohol. And in many ways, it was really the high water mark of Christian political power. But there was an unintended effect of prohibition, which is that it largely, it, it, it produced in a large way organized crime. Crime syndicates rose up to traffic in bootleg liquor. You know, the mafia basically was birthed out of prohibition. It was such a disastrous social experiment. 13 years later, prohibition was repealed. Why am I telling you this story? I'm telling you this story because we need to be cautious about applying political solutions to social problems because it's not easy. Society is very complicated and it's hard for us to untangle the complicated interlocking causes and effects that drive our social problems. Listen, I am not preaching political quietism. I am not advocating for complacency or maintaining the status quo. We need to fight for justice. The Bible is super clear about this, that in every society we live in, because humanity has fallen, 
because humanity has fallen, there will always be unjust structures that maintain people in power and people who are rich. And as Christians, we need to advocate for and speak out for the poor and the weak. But we need to do this with deep circumspection and humility. So that's the first point. Jesus is not political. He doesn't take up the sword. But the second point is Jesus is very political. So remember what I said at the beginning. The kingdom of God is a paradox. Because on the one hand, Jesus repudiates worldly power. He refuses to take up the sword. But on the other hand, he asserts uncompromising dominion and authority. And you can see that in what he says to Pilate. He's challenging Pilate's authority. Look with me to verse 37. Jesus says, For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Jesus is bringing a kingdom of truth. (laughs) That was a very dramatic way to cement that point. Um, All right. Is the camera still good? All right. So, Jesus is bringing a kingdom of truth. What is the truth of Christianity? It's something really deep. It's about the fallenness of humanity and it's about the lordship of Christ. Do you understand the revolutionary implications of this truth? This truth put the early Christians on a collision course with the Roman Empire because the basic creed of the early Christians was Yesu Kyrios, which means Jesus is Lord. And they refused to go along with the imperial code, which was Kaiser Kyrios, which means Caesar is Lord. Let me walk you through the revolutionary implications of this truth, okay? Several years ago, I, I read this really wonderful little book called The Evolution of the West by Nick Spencer. Nick Spencer is a, a British scholar. And this is his basic argument in the book. Listen. He says this whole idea, which is a Christian idea, a uniquely Christian idea, that Caesar has legitimate but limited authority was completely novel. It was completely new in the ancient world. No one had ever conceived of something like that. And so what that did for the early Christians is that they were to give Caesar limited obedience, right? They were not to raise up in revolt, right? They were to be good citizens of the Roman Empire. But ultimately, Christ is Lord. And when Caesar and Christ contradict each other, their ultimate allegiance goes to Christ. And so Nick Spencer says that that became the basis of civil disobedience. And those were the theological foundations that changed the world because the Christian's highest allegiance is to the truth of Scripture and to the justice of God. And from that theological seedbed came this gradual revolution of society and morals 
And out of that came what we now call women's rights, racial justice, care for the poor, equal treatment under the law. These were all, these, these, all of these ideas came out of Christian thinking. And so the early Christians completely transformed the Greco-Roman world. Christians invented the hospital. They invented the university. And eventually, Christians produced the abolition of slavery. Several years ago, um, I read the, uh, the, the biography of William Wilberforce. Do you guys know who he is? William Wilberforce was a very talented member of parliament in the 18th century. He was full of ambition. He was a very talented orator, very talented political mind. Many, many people thought he would one day become prime minister. But when he was 25 years old, he converted to evangelical Christianity. And he became convinced of the evils of the slave trade. And it forever changed the trajectory of his life. And from that point on, he dedicated himself to the eradication of slavery. And that set him against the moneyed interests of Great Britain, which in many ways hindered his political future. And instead, he became the leading voice for abolition in Parliament. He became this prophet crying out against this evil practice. And he wasn't alone. He was part of this much broader evangelical revival that was going on in Britain. You know, in many ways, Britain was a Christian country, but in the mid-18th century, religion had become stale, People were just doing these dry, arid intellectual sermons. And religion was thought of something that sort of gives you an ethical framework, but it shouldn't, it shouldn't interfere in your life. It shouldn't, it shouldn't, you shouldn't be taken up with its passions. But instead, there was this revival of gospel preaching. And there were many people who were part of this, you know, John Newton, there was Hannah Moore. And all across the nation, there were these what were called Methodist study groups. The Methodists were the evangelicals of their day, of that day. And they would discuss Christian values like justice, mercy, and love. And then out of this groundswell of popular sentiment, because society had changed, because this revival was sweeping up more and more people, finally, Parliament ended slavery, uh, sorry, ended the slave trade in 1807 and then finally completely abolished slavery in 1833. Right now, I'm uh, reading a book called Confronting Christianity by Rebecca McLaughlin. And in the book, she says that, you know, Christianity has a complicated history with slavery and racial injustice. And we have to acknowledge that Christians and churches were not only complicit, but they actively participated and profited from the Atlantic slave trade. But she says you also have to consider that it was the evangelical Christians who were at the forefront in the British Empire who objected to slavery. So that the British Empire, at the height of its power, became the first civilization to voluntarily emancipate its slaves. How do you explain that? Every civilization in human history has had slaves. 
every empire in the world, from China to India to the Malinese Empire in Africa to the Aztecs in the Americas, what empires do is they conquer lands and they enslave the population. That's what empires are about. And so did the British. So did the British. But consider this. Inside of the British Empire, there was a people movement led by the Christians. And not because of any external pressure and not because of some internal slave revolt like what happened in Haiti for the French. But within the British Empire, there was this movement that recognized the horrors of slavery so that the British voluntarily released its own slaves at great cost to itself. Yes, Christians have been very inconsistent on this issue. But there is a moral power inside of Christianity that produces social reform. And so is Christianity political? It is absolutely political. Because Christianity is about transformed lives. And when there is a critical mass of Christians in a society because of their web of associations, because they're participating in civic life, when there is a critical mass of Christians, culture changes. And when the culture changes, the laws change and the policies change. And so what am I trying to say? This is my basic argument. I think Christianity works primarily, not exclusively, but primarily at the level of transforming lives, at creating this new society with new affections and and new beliefs. And it does this through the ordinary work of the church, through the ministry of evangelism and discipleship. And so from those transformed lives, through that ministry of the church in creating this new community, these new people, will come a changed politics. And so the church impacts politics, is what I'm trying to argue, not directly, not by pulling the levers of political power, but indirectly through this ministry of discipleship and evangelism. Now, some of you are saying, are there cases where churches make no impact? Absolutely. There are churches that you know are just so focused on their own comfort, and just growing for themselves that they have no public impact on their communities and in their neighborhood. And I would say that those churches are not preaching the fullness of the gospel because the gospel changes lives. The gospel, when it goes into your heart and it controls your life, it will have a public impact. It must or else you're not hearing the gospel. Some of you are saying, well, are there cases where injustice is so clear and so egregious that the church, as the church, must speak out? And I would say yes. I think, you know, Jim Crow, the Jim Crow era is a good example. I think the church in Germany under the Nazi regime is another good example. There are, I think, special cases where 
the injustice is so clear, so out, outrageous and evil that the church as an institution must give voice and speak out against it. But I think this is where it gets tricky. Where do we draw the line? How do we determine that this is a special case that deserves that sort of action? And I don't know. I think it's going to require a lot of discussion and a lot of thought. But the point I want to make here is that when the church puts politics at the forefront, when the church becomes essentially a political organization, it has lost its vision. It has lost its mission from Jesus. And let me also add, it doesn't work in the long run. If you pursue politics apart from winning hearts and transforming lives, the gains will be unsustainable. You know, in the United States, slavery was gradually abolished in the northern states. And it happened for a complicated set of reasons, but a big part of why it happened is that there was a series of religious revivals in the United States. And there was this upswelling of piety and devotion to God And that provided the spiritual and moral substructure that eventually led to the ending of slavery. But that's not what happened in the South. In the South, the question of slavery was resolved through the politics of war. And so because it was this top-down imposition, people's hearts didn't change. The culture didn't change. And so the underlying dynamics of racial superiority, which was driving slavery, which was nourishing slavery, was never addressed. And so the wounds of slavery never healed. And if you know something about post-Reconstruction history, you know that people found ways around the law, right? They, they, They found ways to reinstitute slavery by other means, like, for example, using convict labor. And the culture of white supremacy reasserted itself and it came back with a vengeance. And we are still dealing with the repercussions of it today. Or consider the example of abortion. You know, there's so much political energy and consternation when it comes to abortion. And I have to say, each side is playing this game of power politics. Each side. And it may be that in the coming years, Roe versus Wade will be overturned. Some people are elated about this prospect. Some people are in deep distress. But consider this. There have been studies that have looked at this possibility of a post-Roe v. Wade world, where Roe v. Wade is overturned. And it has concluded that there will probably be a 10% decrease in abortions. The reason for this is because when Roe v. Wade is overturned, the question will be kicked back to the states. Most abortions happen in blue states, not red states. And so Roe v. Wade being overturned will result in the lone abortion clinic in North Dakota and Alabama being closed down. But consider this. In the last 40 years, there has been a 53% decrease in the abortion rate. This is a broad and wide scale decline, both in the rate, 
which is to the population in absolute number of abortions and in the ratio of abortions to pregnancies. The rate has dropped so so precipitously, it is right now below what it was in 1973 when Roe v. Wade was first made into law. And here's the most interesting thing about the analysis. It has nothing to do with what is going on in the law. The abortion rate is declining both in red states where abortion restrictions have been tightened and in blue states in which abortion restrictions have been loosened. Abortion has declined steadily decade by decade, both under Republican presidents and Democratic presidents. It's almost as if it doesn't matter who is the president. Because what has changed is not the laws. And again, you know, the causes of this, this decline is, is complicated. Some of that has to do with the use of contraceptives. But a big part of the answer is that the culture has changed. Hearts have changed on this issue. In our culture, abortion is, I'm sorry, pregnancies are increasingly viewed as rare and precious. And that view is more predominant in the younger generation than in the older generation. Regardless of what happens in the Supreme Court, the abortion rate will continue to drop for those reasons. I am not saying laws are unimportant. We need good laws that reflect justice and righteousness. But my point is that any legal or political settlement will be fragile unless hearts change. And so playing the game of power politics only gives your side a temporary flush of victory and it lasts only until the next election. I think that's what's been going on in American politics. We've just been ping-ponging back and forth between the parties, each side trying to dominate each other. Jesus says in Matthew 20, 25, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over the people and their great ones exercise authority over them. You know, the politics of the world, it's about power. It's about dominion. And the politics of this world doesn't care about the truth. Pilate cynically said, what is the truth? For him, truth is a facade. Truth is a cover for power. And I think the Bible here gives us a powerful critique of empire. But Jesus shows us a more excellent way. Because at the heart of Christianity is a man dying for his enemies. You know, if you look at this passage, it's not this abstract philosophical discussion about politics. But the whole time, you have to remember, Jesus is bound by chains. And he's being interrogated for sedition against the Roman Empire. And the whole time, Pilate is laughing at Jesus. He's full of derision and mockery because Jesus is the very opposite of kingly power for Pilate. But you know what? Pilate was wrong. In verse 32, when Jesus was handed over to to Pilate, it says this, listen, This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. 
See, the whole time, Pilate thought he was in control. But he's actually a puppet of the crowds. He wanted to release Jesus, but he couldn't because he was afraid. The only person in absolute control in this story is Jesus. Because it is all unfolding according to his plan. What was his plan? John chapter 12, verse 31 through 33. Listen to this. Now is the judgment of, the, of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up, he's talking about the cross. When I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Hear me. The healing of this world is not going to happen by force of arms. It's not going to happen through political maneuverings. But it's going to happen through the Son of God laying down his life to save a broken world. And by, the, by his death, he will draw all people to himself. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. I want to close with a reflection on this season of heightened political emotions. And I think that in many ways, maybe this is the most important thing that I want to say today. We live in a time of unprecedented polarization. Polarization is when people with different politics don't just think that the other side is wrong, they think the other side is evil. Polarization is when each side doesn't just disagree with one another, they hate each other. What is going on? Christina is uh, reading a book right now by Vivek Murthy called Together. Vivek Murthy was the Surgeon General under President Obama. And he's looking at all of the data, right? And he concludes, here, hear, hear this, that the greatest health crisis facing America right now, and he reaffirmed this even during the pandemic, the greatest health crisis facing America is an epidemic of loneliness. He says because of the economic mobility, because of you know, our culture of individualism, we have lost this sense of connection to one another. And one of the results of social isolation is political polarization. And it's getting worse. You know, when we used to live in thick communities with one another, when we used to constantly interact with each other and talk to each other and engage with each other, we could see people in all of their complexities. We could see one another as human beings, not just as political positions. But as we lose our social cohesion with each other, we begin to demonize and we begin to think the worst of each other. And I think this pandemic is only making it worse. And in the absence of social contact, we begin to dehumanize one another because of politics. One week ago, Ruth Bader Ginsburg died. And there was an outpouring, there has been an outpouring of grief and tributes. And in one of the articles, I read about the unlikely friendship between Ginsburg and Scalia, 
And as I read it, it really affected me. Because on the one hand, you have Antonin Scalia, who is the lion of the right. And then you have Ruth Bader Ginsburg, this feminist icon, affectionately called Notorious RBG. And they are on polar opposites of, of politics. They have served in the court for two decades together. And there has never been a five to four decision in which they were on the same side. On paper, through their opinions, they are fierce ideological opponents. But in person, in the flesh, they have a deep, warm regard and affection for each other. And in fact, they are each other's best friends. And the article goes on to talk about how they share this love of opera. They go to operas together. They invite each other over for dinner. Their families go on vacation together. And I think what makes this friendship so remarkable is that in a world that is tearing each other apart, Ginsburg and Scalia saw each other as more than political opponents. They regarded each other as friends. Here is the vision of the church that Jesus gives us. Among his 12 disciples, he chose Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector. That's the biographical details were given about these two disciples. Do you know what that means? You know who the Zealots were? The Zealots were radical revolutionaries dedicated to the overthrow of the Roman Empire. They were also called the Sicarii. Sicarii means dagger. And the Zealots uh, would hide these daggers in their cloak and they would blend into the crowd and their whole goal is to get close enough to a Roman soldier so they could stick a dagger into that soldier and then blend back into the crowd. That was Simon. He was basically an anti-Roman terrorist. And then you have Matthew, the tax collector. You know who the tax collectors were? They were basically Jewish collaborators. They were an essential part of the bureaucracy that administered Roman rule upon the land. They were basically employees of the Roman Empire. You could not find two people, Simon and Matthew, who are more diametrically opposed to each other. They would have absolutely hated each other. If you think the politics of abortion and Obamacare is heated, that doesn't hold a candle to the politics of Roman occupation in first century Palestine. And yet, Jesus chose both of these men, not just one, but both, to be his disciples. Why? Because the lordship of Jesus relativizes politics. Do you understand? If you can't stand to be in a church with people of different politics, then you really have to ask yourself, is your fundamental identity, is it Christ or is it politics? You know, it's dehumanizing to treat people only as a political position. We all have our stories. We all have families that we love. You know, we all have passions and interests that define our personality. Some of us really love opera, you know? 
Come on now, I'm pleading with you. And so the, the vision of our church is that we are to be a church for all people. The vision of our church is to follow Jesus and to help others to follow Jesus. And when we say others, we don't just mean people who think like you, who share your politics. And so we have to be a church where Democrats and Republicans can live in peace. So let me say it explicitly. If you are a Biden voter, if you are a Trump voter, if you are a pox on both houses, I'm a third party voter, you are welcome here. This church can be a spiritual home for you. Paul gives us the vision of the church in Colossians 3 verse 11. Listen to this. Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. You know, in the world, we see divisions. People are divided over race. People are divided by gender. People are divided by economic class. People are divided by politics. And man, in the world out there, they hate each other. It's gotten to the point where it's very hard for me to watch the news because there's so much vitriol. But that's the world, you know? Our world is a fallen place. But it must not be in the church. In the church, all the divisions of the world. And you know, when you become a Christian, it doesn't erase your ethnic identity. It doesn't erase your gender. You're still a Jew. You're still a Gentile. But now in the church, that becomes a beautiful expression of the rich diversity that could only find its unity in Christ. I know we're not there yet. I know that we have a long, long way to go. And we have a lot of work to do to be a church that truly welcomes people. But with the help of the Spirit, we can make some progress. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we live in a hyper-politicized world. And these are not unimportant questions. These are fundamental, deep questions about society, about justice, about equitable arrangements. And it's going to require a lot of thought. And inside of our church, there are significant disagreements. But help us to find unity in Christ. Help us to find our essential identity that we are forgiven sinners under the Lordship of Christ. And from that posture of gospel-soaked, transformed lives, help us to live it out in the public. We don't want to be private, quiet Christians. We want to live out our faith in the world. We want to make an impact for Jesus Christ. 
Help us to think Christianly about all of these things. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.